Welcome to the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. This month on the Subtext, we have something very different. A project we've been working on for over a year and a half. For those of you listening for the first time, the Subtext is a podcast where a playwright, me, talks to another playwright about their lives and what makes them tick. I'm not a journalist, so these episodes are more conversation than they are interview. If you're interested in such a thing, subscribe to the subtext wherever you get your podcasts. And share this with your networks, because that really is the best way for us to find new ears. Honestly, though, you don't need to do our marketing for us. All you really need to do is listen, and all that other stuff is gravy. As I said, this month, the episode is very different. Back in 2019, I reached out to the Playwright Center in Minneapolis because I wanted to visit them and create an episode around the great work they do. That didn't quite come together. Then, pandemic. Time passes. We started talking again in 2020, and Jeremy Cohen, the Playwright Center Artistic Director, mentioned this fascinating project Heather Raffa was working on. I didn't quite understand what this project was but I knew it was unique and way outside the box. So we decided to build an entire episode around both her as an artist and specifically focused on the project Jeremy was describing, whatever it was. What you're gonna hear is the result of 18 months of work, or I should say the result of work that was spread out over 18 months. We not only interviewed Heather herself several times over the course of that time, but We also spoke to other folks connected to Heather and or involved in the project that she's been working on, which is titled, Tomorrow Will Be Sunday. None of this would have happened without the help and collaboration of the Playwright Center, so I'm going to give them a big thanks right up front. You will hear one of them in this episode, Haley Finn, who is the Associate Artistic Director. But a big thanks goes out to Daniel Reck and Jeremy Cohen. Uh, And by the way, Jeremy... I did a one-on-one interview with him, and that should be coming out uh, a few weeks after this one. I also want to say that we thought we would be done with this about a year ago, and I appreciate Playwright Center's patience around our slow progress. Anyway, here we are. I'm excited to introduce you to Heather Raffo and her new project, Tomorrow Will Be Sunday. We start with a portion of a monologue performed by Heather Raffo. Swing State, Whole Foods Market, steps from the Detroit River. A man wearing a mask is on a small step stool stocking a completely empty pasta shelf. A woman, also wearing a mask, enters pushing her grocery cart. Groceries valued at $358. I smile. I see you, my eyes say. Thank you for being here today, for stocking, for everything. I appreciate you, my eyes say. His eyes say nothing. Thank you for your work. We need you now, all of us. Thank you, person I don't know. Thank you, worker. I want to be connected, together, friends. 
friends, his eyes say from a distance. How's your job? Your family? Maybe you hate your job or doing this job now? And what's this place to you? It's money, and I, I don't know, not that much money, or maybe you like your job? Or are you afraid for your life? I'm sorry, I just, I don't, I don't know what to say, but I'm smiling and you're not, and other people say yes with their eyes. They offer a way in. We're not gonna survive this without each other. Survive, his eyes ask. My name is Heather Raffo. I'm an artist. I'm a mother. I'm a theater maker. Um, when I think of the three places that made me, I think of the Middle East. I think of the Midwest. And more and more now I'm thinking of middle age because being in the age that I am, I am straddling different eras. And I can see that that's also playing out in my work. Um, what made me an artist was a absolute drive to create. I don't think I knew what kind of artist I wanted to be or what medium that would take, but the initial impulse was to express something that I felt wasn't being expressed in my family, in my own life, in my community. And that started from a very young age. But then I'll say the thing that shaped me the most, both in my personal life and in my artistry was the first Iraq war. And I will never know who I would have been if that had not happened. Um, I was in my early 20s in the early 90s, and that had such a profound impact on how I both viewed the world, but also how I had to bridge the world. And I would say that as my artistry grew out of that, um, studying acting, studying um, lots of Shakespeare in my acting, lots of classical work, and then moving into playwriting, um, I would say that bridging cultures was something I was very much in pursuit of. I think one could look back on the plays that I've written and my work and say, okay, well, there's a focus on war. Yes, there's a focus on the Iraq War in Nine Parts of Desire, in Fallujah, in Noura. But I think what the focus really is on is the civil war. It's really much more about the war within than the war without. It's about belonging and identities in crisis. So 
I think that that sense of holding two incommensable things in the same space, holding the breadth of complexity of something that one can't make sense of, but knows they're holding it the same time as they're holding something else is what plays out in all my work. And as much as I've just said that can be about civil war and conflict or an inability to make two things understand each other, it's also hugely about unconditional love. And there is unconditional love running through every aspect of my work. My name's Matt Wells. Um, I am Heather Raffo's husband. Uh, we first met in uh, way back in 2004 here in New York City, where we both still live uh, in Brooklyn with our two kids, aged 12 and 10. Um, so we've come quite a long way together. It, it was one of those fateful things where um, I was at the time working as a BBC correspondent in the city. I was asked, I was phoned up or maybe I was emailed. Uh, one day by a BBC producer who wanted me to get in touch with Heather to arrange to record her doing some voiceovers uh, for a BBC radio documentary uh, which was based on, on on letters from Iraq during the during the initial invasion period. So um, uh, we kind of over email over several days tried to make an arrangement to get together. Um, I, I was at the time, I was very reluctant to go into the BBC studio to do it. So I kind of persuaded her to come to my uh, sixth floor walk up in uh, in uh, No Liter in, uh, in downtown Manhattan. Uh, and she was a bit, a bit apprehensive about going to a strange guy's apartment. So she got a friend to sort of drop her off and uh, arrange to uh, check in with her if she didn't hear from her after a couple of hours. So she kind of walked up, knocked on my door. As an Englishman, of course, I offered her a cup of tea off the bat. Um, and then we sat down and did the work. And, uh, you know, she was fantastically good at, at doing it. It was very efficient. But we we had a chit chat at the end of that, agreed to meet at some point later that summer. Um, I think at the time she was actually dating a, an actor in London, ironically enough. Uh, and she was going to London uh, to uh, talk to people about the play about nine parts and then we met in the summer and not long after that as fate would have it the the theater that um debuted the uh, her off-broadway show nine parts was very close to my apartment so uh luck was on my side uh, and we kind of uh, made the most of all the wonderful theaters and the romantic environs of lower manhattan uh during our early stage of dating and then uh after a few years together, we got married. I'm Maya Roth, and I'm a professor at Georgetown University. I um, am also artistic director of our Davis Performing Arts Center. I first met Heather when we were hosting her. We have a partnership with Arena Stage at the Mead Center, and we were hosting Heather together as a guest artist and so I was as chair at that time, uh, or as director of the theater and performance studies program, I've done a lot of roles. 
I was figuring out ways to connect her to our curriculum and to protect her research time and ways that, you know, really I could host her. And what was striking is she wanted to hear about my work and that's Heather. My name is Haley Finn. I'm the Associate Artistic Director at the Playwright Center. I'm a director, producer, dramaturg, new play advocate, um, generally work very closely with playwrights on their plays really early on in development and then through production sometimes. I've been at the Playwright Center for 15 years, so um, it's, a it's a fantastic organization. I know I'm biased, but I, I really do believe that in my heart. <laughs> So the McKnight Foundation is this amazing foundation that's based in Minnesota that the Playwright Center has had a long-term relationship with. Um, what's amazing about the McKnight Foundation is that they're very committed to supporting the arts in Minnesota, and that has led to really helping the arts community overall. And certainly we have a couple of fellowships specifically for Minnesota-based artists, uh, two of them each year for playwrights, three for theater artists, and we also um, have this amazing other opportunity, which is the McKnight National Residency and Commission, which is designed specifically for someone who's not based in Minnesota to come and be in conversation with Minnesota artists and develop work over the course of a year. Um, when it's not COVID, come out and visit and make the work in the Playwright Center. Otherwise, you know, we've been doing a lot of work through Zoom, like so many people. And Heather received this um, amazing opportunity. So it's really a commission for her to create a work of her choice um, and for the Playwright Center to support her in that through all of its stages of development. Uh, my name is Michael Karachi. I'm uh, currently going into my last year at Columbia for my MFA in acting. I am a research assistant for Heather. I was actually in Chautauqua, the, the virtual conservatory that they had for the year of 2020. They're, you know, they're gonna have a regular year and then obviously COVID hit. So they decided to do some like a virtual thing. And Heather was supposed to do Nora at Chautauqua Theater Company in the summer of 2020. But because of COVID and everything, they switched it. So they're like, okay, let's have this group of actors work on Tomorrow Will Be Sunday with Heather as a sort of workshop. Um, because, you know, we're on Zoom, we can't really put up a play, but we can sort of delve into a process and we can all get something out of it. So we had been working on that. Um, and I was really excited to meet Heather because like myself, she's Arab American and she's also from Michigan, uh, which I'm from Michigan. I'm actually currently in Michigan. So we had this sort of like cosmic crazy thing happen where, you know, we got on the Zoom and we recognized each other in a, in a very specific way and we saw each other in a very interesting way, you know, in a way, in a way that like other, other people don't typically see us, you know, we were able to see each other and, and for who we are in our histories, sort of. Dad wasn't a big communicator with words. His love was enormous. And he wanted to do story problems in algebra in the car for fun when I wanted to have deep conversations about the nature of what <laughs> his soul or his family or where he came from, or tell me stories about your mom and dad, right? Um, and I never could pinpoint why, like what was up with that? And because I'm driven by story, 
or have come to realize that I'm driven by story and ancestry. It really took me till I was in my early 20s in 1992. I went back to Iraq on my own and brought back from Iraq a shoebox full of photos of my dad in his youth. And this happened because my dad had nine brothers and sisters. They all had five kids. When I went there, it was like, which, whose house you're going to for dinner? My uncle was the social secretary. Like, you were going this house Tuesday night, this house Wednesday night, right? And you, I'm just meeting this family as an adult. I mean, I'd only been when I was four. So suddenly I'm meeting everybody as an adult in my early 20s. And they want to give you something. I finally wised up and said, do you have any photos of my dad? Show me him in his youth. Tell me the stories. Because I'd never seen a picture of my dad as a kid. I'd never heard, you know, he, he, would, he would talk about his life as a kid, but he wouldn't, wouldn't go into much detail. So suddenly his whole childhood was revealed to me through these little black and white photos. And I brought that back to my dad along with all the photos I took of them on that trip, which I had to have developed in Iraq because you couldn't take out film because the Saddam regime would confiscate it because, you know, what'd you take a picture of, right? So I just arrived back to Michigan and set this down in front of my dad and I never ever saw him weep for as long or as deeply as he just, he just wept over this living and past history. He particularly also wept over the house he'd grown up in as a kid in Mosul. So then the story comes out of how, you know, I mean, I knew he had grown up in Mosul, but it turns out he and one of his elder brothers were the first to move to Baghdad to go to University of Baghdad. And they built a house for my grandparents and the rest of the brothers and sisters to move them from Mosul to Baghdad because they just felt that that was what you should be doing in that time, this was the thing to do, right? So he'd never been back to that house that he was born in and raised in. And I took a photo of it and was bringing it back, his 22, 23 year old kid who he'd fought with <laughs> all the time about, you know, all these things. Suddenly I'm, I'm also the kid kind of brave enough to go in pursuit of this. So I got a lot more stories, stories out of him after that. He could have had a, he could have foreseen having a different life in Iraq than he ever would have had in America, but he didn't want it. And it wasn't that he could foresee that there would be these wars, he didn't, but he was very glad to be living the life he was living in America and also the ability to help family from here. But um, none of his other nine brothers and sisters wanted to move. They stayed through both wars. So it was 
I have come to terms with the fact that um, everybody's unique, everybody's different, everybody has a different threshold for what they're leaving, why they're leaving. He was so attached to his family, but he was such an adventurer and it, it won out in the end. Whereas the rest of the family really, really stayed in that familial unit until, until the very last, which was around 2014, 15, 16, when they started leaving in large numbers. Heather is, is bound to people like family, both folks who are family and folks with whom she makes art or, you know, shares, shares experiences. What else? Um, she's deeply honest. Some people would say, I don't, but I've been fascinated to hear others say that she's abrasive or something, or um, I, I, I find that fascinating. I think it's because she's female and she asks the direct questions, but she is so warm. So I just find it fascinating that, that you know, so what would I say? I would say tenacious and, you know, incisive, but like, these are gifts. These are great things in a room. These aren't um, concerning. She has a very fast tempo. Um, she shares food, she shares life. I think that's part of what I mean when I say making people family. When I think of Heather, I think of someone who is extremely intelligent. She is very well read. Um, very well informed, and she brings her whole self to to any project. Um, she's very, also very warm as a human being. I've gotten a chance to know her really just from the past couple of years of working with her at the Playwright Center and on this project in particular. And one of the things that I love about Heather is that she doesn't shy away from big ideas and um, ambitious thoughts and trying to figure out how to to really push herself um, to take her work to the next level. She's constantly deepening and deepening and deepening and deepening. I think Heather is uh, a visionary for sure. I think she's extremely curious in all different ways, intellectually, spiritually, uh, theatrically, as you can see from this piece. Um, and I think that she has a really a deep love for humanity. And I think that that comes out in her love for getting at the truth. And yeah, she's just a very, she's a very generous person, um, but also someone who is willing to be challenged. She has this great ability. It's one of her great gifts uh, is to sort of have this empathy and understanding, this kind of huge warm intelligence uh, in her writing and her approach to writing about people and especially about Iraqis. I think those are the building blocks of my plays. Those are the building blocks of my personal life. Um, they're the building blocks of a lot of how I'm trying to make sense of the world. From this vantage point of 2021, I've often looked back on what I was thinking about, what I was writing about, 
what my artistry has been over the last three decades. And I keep coming back to Iraq as a bellwether for America. I'd also say that, you know, it's in simple things like being a mom. Motherhood has been one of the most profound experiences of my life, back to the unconditional love and learning even deeper oceans of opportunity for this unconditional love. At the same time, it's been possibly the most isolating time of my life. It's not a value system that is easy to reconcile with the American theater. It's also oddly not a value system that's easy to reconcile in the West. Right? When we, when we think of this idea of the pursuit of the rugged individual as being something that the West is about and how that relates itself to Western feminism, the idea that you have to take your community with you and that you move in a communal way, that you're supporting other beings is is a hard sell to most employers. It's a hard way to move through the system of the American theater with the pay structure and the hours that it is. So I did find that my writing and the steps I've taken in my artistry since becoming a mother are hugely influenced by an inability to an inability to pursue the art form that I wanted to pursue. My writing career started with a question. And the question was, so was something like, can we, can we actually say the things that nobody's talking about? Can we do that? Is there a place for that? Is there a place we can say the things that aren't being said, but then offer them deeply in conversation with people that live on all sides of the issues. So I was excited about the experiment. I was excited about the experiment in the middle of my own personal anguish, which was knowing we were going to war in Iraq again. So here I am trying to build this play told from an Iraqi female perspective when that had never existed on stage before in America. I didn't know if it would be viable. I didn't know if it would ever happen on our stages. I didn't know if it was going to be censored. Um, I realized that the process to getting that produced was full of all those things. Most people didn't feel like they could do it. And I know that the, the most of the theater establishment, if you ask them today, they'd say for sure they were not on the side of the war, but this was still before a genre of Middle Eastern American theater had ever existed. So there just wasn't precedent. So pushing forth into a conversation 
of things that hadn't ever been talked about before was like a minefield, but it was also meant it was so full of possibility. And once I found out that it worked, right? Once it actually happened and once theaters across the nation felt they could do it, then I was in conversation with people in very different parts of America. And that changed me entirely. So that when I got to working on Fallujah, I knew what it was like to have a national conversation about a topic that nobody wanted to discuss, but that needed to. And the topic of veteran suicide at that time was something the military absolutely did not want to address, right? But both plays were dealing with the unspoken trauma. We're very much a culture that, that doesn't want to get in there <laughs> with what's really happening. We're very much a culture that wants to move on. And I felt like the underpinnings of understanding the stakes of who we are as both individuals and as a nation demanded that we analyze and reckon with and care for the wounds that were created. Won't someone in charge take some responsibility for what's happening so I can just be a fellow human here? This can't go on. I want to reach, touch, be part. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm shopping here. I don't normally, no, I don't usually. Does this just mean I'm part of it now? Just one transaction away? That's where this is going, right? Every choice I make is going to determine the future of data, 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 dark roast. Yeah, organic dark roast. Data, 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 dad, dad. Oh God, my dad. My dad died. He died and I can't, I, I can't touch, can't bury, can't hold. Not even a dead body. You're the only person I've seen. And why should you smile at me or consider some woman? This is not your store. This is not even Whole Foods anymore. This is some big network of nothing and nowhere. And my dad's dead. Oh, dad. Dad. And how do you move on if you can't bury your dead? I was five feet from his bed, but outside, as far as I am from you, I could see and hear his body like I can see and hear your body. The nurse called it actively dying when all the body can do is breathe. They let me stand outside his window when he was actively dying. They built me a tent when the rain was coming. So I got to be there. I had a window. 
Others don't even have that. No first floor room, no earth outside anywhere to stand on. I'm glad I wasn't allowed inside. I could feel him more strongly with my feet in the soil. I knew he needed to go, but didn't know how. I held my hands up in prayer, I don't know what, and I prayed through the window, I don't know what. I saw his eyes open and labor because the body wants to live even when it's dying. It was active, so active, like panting, fast for four hours, fast, then slow. It slowed so much you couldn't count on it, and it slowed more until it was the breath that didn't come back. And for the first time, I realized I was cold. I turned behind me toward the parking lot, saw the sky. I looked, but I saw nothing. So I just stood there in a hospital blanket, getting dark, and closed my eyes. And that's when I saw his ancestors had his body overhead. First his mother, it was her baby. Then his father and his grandfathers, a line of ancestors, orderly and with purpose, originating with me, passing his spirit, each pass a blessing. I saw all the people who'd come before me, worlds I never knew I came from. And it went on and on until it was hard to even see. And it still went on into infinity. It went on until he was passed back into the star from which he came. This is Brian chiming in again. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I was fascinated with this new project Heather was working on, and that was the thing that drew me to making an episode like this. But I have to be completely honest with you. I was wicked confused about what this project really was. Was it a play? Was it a film? Was it an online choose-your-own-adventure? I could not wrap my head around it. So I asked others to help me understand. Tomorrow will be Sunday. It's interesting because when Heather first came to the Playwright Center to work on this piece, she really thought of it about a play about migration. And that when we first started to talk about the piece, she was really interested in talking to economists because she was interested in thinking about how money migrated and what that meant. Um, And as the play has evolved, there has been... I think a shift in understanding. So it's not just about um, money or migration in particular, but that um, it's really about different value systems, whether they be money, currency, whether they be um, ecological values or um, human value. And that I think is the lens of which the whole piece is constructed. Um, So as she was developing the play, she thought, wow, there's so much material here because every every time I was seeing her, she was coming up with more and more scenes. I mean, there was just so much material in this incredibly beautiful way. And there was nothing that felt like didn't belong in the play. That was another part of it. It just was like, wow, and this really resonates to this and this connects with this and, and all of it. So um, at one point she said, you know, I, I think that this might be more than just a play. Like, you know, what would it, 
you know, I think it might take another form or multiple forms. And we just started talking about what that could all mean and could look like. And uh, one of the things that I think Heather is excited about is that it is really a global play, right? It's about global ideas. It's about one, it's about connections. It's about what happens in Texas, affects somebody in Abu Dhabi, affects somebody in Norway, affects somebody, you know, in New York City, you know, like how all of those things connect and how we do need and share and depend on each other's resources, be they water, oil, et cetera, or um, money, you know, and how that operates. Um, and then also, what does that mean for us as human beings? Like, and where does human value come into play with all of this? So as she started to think on just the, the, the uh, expanse of the scope of this project, we started to talk about like other platforms and other forms it could take. I think at some point we were like, well, maybe uh, it's an immersive experience or maybe that's partly online. And we've met with, um, web developers to like talk about what that might look like. And I think one of the things Heather's really excited about in that respect is what if part of it was filmed in Norway and part of it was filmed, you know, in Syria or part of it was, you know, so that she had collaborators all over the world that were also able to contribute to this online platform experience of the piece. And that, that it was, um, and it was something that could continue to grow, that it wouldn't just be a static piece, but as times changed and, and we learn more and more information would come, that she would continue to write material for this platform so that it would be organic um, and alive in some way by the fact that it's constantly changing. This project is just so large and uh, it's, so, it's so sprawling. I think that the only way that I can sort of sum it up would be um, like a, a sort of history of the present, which I know sounds redundant, right? But it's sort of a, an attempt to draw the lines between people um, to understand. One thing that we would always talk about was how a lot of people don't understand near past history or, or the history of the present, really. Like, why is it that we are in the situation that we are, especially being, you know, Middle Eastern? With this project, it's sort of etching the line between uh, people here in the U.S. and people abroad, um, and and how not only do these things coexist in the same time period, but how they actually inform each other, and how they actually how one affects the other. I think a really uh, pivotal point that we got into with our research when I was sort of sharing what her work reminded me of is we, we brought up the book Regarding the Pain of Others by Susan Sontag, which is one of my all-time favorite books. And I brought it up because of a specific quote that I remember um, after being in class um, that I think really illuminated what she was trying to get at with this piece specifically. Um, so the, the quote essentially goes something along the lines of to set aside empathy, um, we extend to others beset by, you know, by war, by famine. Um, we have to reflect on how our privileges as people are actually located on the same map as another suffering. Um, and in ways that we prefer not to think about, not to imagine. 
their suffering is actually linked to our privileges and that our wealth, the wealth of our nations is, can actually be tied to the destitution of another person. Um, and I think that that goes really hand in hand with what Heather's trying to do, sort of connecting Texas to Palestine, to Norway, to Syria. What is it that, what is it, why is it that all these things are happening at the same time? Um, why is it that some people have extreme wealth and some people have absolutely nothing? Um, and how is it that we can put ourselves in that geography, right? So we can look and we can see directly. I'm standing here and that's happening over there. I'm not simply absolving myself from responsibility, but understanding that the reason that I can stand here and feel okay is may, might be the reason that that person cannot go to sleep at night because of their destitution, bombs, warfare, famine, things like that. A subtitle that may or may not be there for this particular work is Tomorrow Will Be Sunday, a play about migrations and the global economy. This is part of a cycle of works. And that cycle of works is importantly tracking currencies. And also, I think of it in a way like medieval theater. It's a cycle of works that can take place in different locations, different spaces, and they morph and complement each other. So seasons in the world, nature, seasons, spring, summer, winter, fall, um, they are part of the organizational structure of the play and thematically, they connect to this idea of our current economic system is out of whack with seasonal rhythms. So yes, there is, an, there is that wonderful, maybe nostalgic notion of what a seasonal shaping of the structure of a play might look like, but that too is being radically morphed within this particular theater piece. And then over time in this cycle of works, there will be dropping different seasons. You know, this is spring 2.0. This is wildfire season. This is flu season. Um, so that there's something in the variability. It's it's radically ambitious, but it's also saying we need new forms to express not only what the work is about, but what we are living right now. We are breaking the forms in world systems and in natural life cycles and even in conceptualizing things. I would describe the piece as about value systems. Um, Tomorrow Will Be Sunday is about the value of money, the value of um, our ecological resources, and the value of humans. And if you care about any of those things, then you will care about this piece and it will be interesting to you. I think that the content is accessible, but also really um, informative and surprising at times. Um, I've learned a lot from reading the piece. I also think that what Heather is so brilliant at is making connections. So um, you get a chance to see how she is putting all of these things together and how she is seeing the connections that are happening by experiencing the piece, whether it be online or um, whether it be in a theater.
So the form of, of Tomorrow Will Be Sunday is quite unique from other theater experiences that you might have. Heather is really imagining it as existing in at least two, two modalities, two ways of being. So like it would be in a theater, a 90 minute piece that you might go see at your local theater. And it might also exist online so that you could access it any time of day from anywhere in the world. And that that experience is something that you could continue to return to. So like you might experience a video game, for example, uh, you could go to that site and experience part of the narrative. And each time you did, you might experience it differently and learn about new connections. And similar, similar to a video game, it, it would become an immersive experience so that you'd actually get to feel like you're there in the room with people. And so perspective becomes a really interesting thing to contemplate when you're looking at um, the web platform because it would be like little films nested in the web and that you would be able to have these different kind of narrative experiences each time you went on to see it. Um, this is an experiment in storytelling that looks at tipping points and there are moving parts across the play or there are, it doesn't have to be a play. There are moving parts across this piece. This is a journey not of a protagonist. This is a journey of ideas and questions about what is the relationship and how do we, what are the current values that the economic system creates? Who's worth how much? How our practices and lives here, nothing can stay localized. It's not only the seasons are out of balance, it's not only the environment is out of balance, economics are out of balance, everything's out of balance. So the question is, of the play, of the theater piece, of the artistic endeavor, how do you value differently? That's the bottom line. How might we value differently? The way we're valuing currently is producing damage in individual lives, collectively, on cultures, on countries, um, on the environment. So the way I say to people who, you know, who for whom it's new, it's like, it is kind of basic. It's not using new age talk of like human flourishing. It's pretty grounded actual. It's saying human and social, systemic and human forces are interconnected. That's the bottom line. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's looking, it's, and therefore, if you were to only focus on an, in, like a protagonist story or even an ensemble story where we're so invested in the people the whole time, it becomes about, oh, I care about them or that cluster. And it really does want to look at systemically, what are we doing? What are we participating in? I mean, I think it, in a funny way, it's a bit movie-like. Um, you know, we've got a huge theme here, which is about global migration. But ultimately, what it's about is about individual human relationships. What, what Heather's doing here is she's just describing how those transactions play out in real life. You know, the obvious case would be to talk about you know, people trafficking or migrants, you know, being um, shoved into boats on the Libyan shore to hopefully cross the Mediterranean and start a new life in Europe. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, the obvious uh, scene that we all think think about that comes to mind when we think about what are the realities of um, migration today. 
but you know what she's doing is trying to show the thousand different ways in which migration is impacting our lives and relationships in in the countries where people want to run to but migration's so much bigger than that now i mean you know it's everywhere around the world people are realizing i mean partly because i think you know the internet and the onslaught of climate change that's being felt everywhere um more and more people are getting up and going and um so i think it, it is a genuine movement now um and how better to describe it than to just try and give people real tangible examples of how relationships are corrupted how people are abused and exploited you know there are there are there are lots of subtle ways in which migration the migration story is a story of all of us these days we can and should see premieres versions of this 90 minute piece there will be some immersive experiences i am confident that it excites artists artistic imagination to be given something that is not only experimental and new but ambitious you know i think that um because it is takes economics so seriously i think that's actually the harder nut for American theater. So I think any place that would produce serious money by Carol Churchill is going to be over the moon to see this. This is like it's like a public intellectual using theater as the forum. Except she's not only an intellectual, she's an artist. It's like saying, "Let me use my intellect and my creative virtuosity to collaborate with you and to be present as you take this work." and make it ripple in your context. And then let's use that to reflect on what we can do in the world and share it with each other and add it to that collective map we're making. So that that keeps growing. Yes, she's going to keep writing things. Yes, there will be but there's also it's really important that there is a multimedia map where anybody who does something with this feeds into a collective thing where we can actually and There are apps that you you can just enter what's where and cost differentials and all those books about you know material culture who has what who eats how much food and it, like you put all your food on the things that National Geographic might do back in the day but that the United Nations does now like that's what this is that multimedia mapping thing we're going to have a, an extraordinary one that like migration research centers produce except think what it happens when you also get artists collaborating with those folks so that's a that's an auxiliary kind of pedagogical thing but it's not just about teaching that is about this larger cultural intervention that the cycle is engaged on He was from a different era. All structure, father, provider. He was a civil engineer. He built houses, built bridges. He planned, he saved, he'd fix the toaster and not buy a new one. He grew up with one pair of shoes for school, so he played soccer barefoot. We all have those stories, the barefoot stories. But now I can't feel the earth beneath my feet.
It feels like a lack of structure not to be able to bury an engineer. Was it light? Was it dark? It was the equinox, an easier exit, someone said, when heaven and earth are balanced, a day of perfect balance. So yes, I saw something in his death. I guess that's all I wanted to say, this, this. I recognize this place, this pasta, this coffee, how far back it goes from where we come. Origins and supply chains, it all goes back. We go back, a long way back. And this, our relationship, what I buy, how much it's worth, how much we're worth, and your work, your life, I recognize. I recognize I make all kinds of assumptions about you, and that's all about me, but I still recognize you as a good human who comes to work, who shows up for others, or not. Brian again. It was helpful for me to hear how others spoke about this new work. Through talking with everybody, I got a sense of form, despite the fact that the form of this piece was intentionally fluid. But having all these conversations reinforced what first moved me to talk to Heather about Tomorrow Will Be Sunday. I will admit, and many of you might be where I was at this point, I had yet to fully conceptualize what this piece was all about. Early in Heather's process, I spoke to her about where she was in conceptualizing the piece and how she imagined theaters could produce the work eventually. This project came out of the convergence of a number of things. One is having almost a hundred Iraqi family members become part of the global refugee population and be on the move. Looking deeper into that and understanding what was the underpinnings of refugee movement across the globe, I kept thinking it looks more economic than it looks like I'm seeing in the media. In the media, I'm seeing stories of enemy or victim. And so I tried to keep undercovering what is the economic connection between countries everywhere that makes people move to different places, that makes people accept refugees from different places. So one is my family. The second is trying to unpack the value system that I saw at work in the American theater and both my place in it and the place of refugee plays within it. The third, it came out of an impulse of knowing that we're all connected, every single person across the globe, but wanting to know how. And wanting to articulate how, and wanting to do that in a very tangible way, not an intangible way. Wanting to allow for a play like this to happen in 
Michigan or Minnesota or Wisconsin or Texas, right? Amongst populations that might be on all sides of their opinion about what um, the refugee and migrant issues are, but showing them that there is a complicity and a connection that's, that's deeper than complicity in every transaction we make in our lives. When I go to the grocery store, everything I pick up has come from somewhere, has been through chains and chains of human beings. Capitalism has touched that apple. <laughs> as far back as you can see, and how many lives are impacted. Every decision I make is impacting every life everywhere. So this play is an attempt to kind of look at those transactions and step back from them without a huge sense of liberalism or a huge sense of conservatism and just say, what, what th this is the economic structure we are all living in. And all a party to, how are any of us gonna survive it? I also knew that the, the making of this play would need me to both get very in the weeds and then stand back and try to look up off of planet earth and then back in different weeds and then back up planet earth. So it's been micro, macro, micro, macro, and, and I'm still in search of its ultimate form. But yeah, it started in all these, these quick ideas of who these human beings are in these transactions. It also ended up being, surprisingly, but not so much when I look at it from this vantage point, and I'm right in the middle, is the whose voice is it in and whose lens? Yes, it's in multiple voices and it, it wants to take place all around the world. But a lot of it started and a lot of it has stayed at the moment in the mouths of Western people living in Western lives, talking about migration from somewhere or something. And of course, as somebody who's always written mostly from an Iraqi female point of view is, is, is of some of Iraqi characters living in Iraq, I was really fighting against that. But on the other hand, I'm like, no. A woman in a swing state, in a swing district, in a swing state, has so much more power with her single vote than how many other people in the world have. So what she thinks and what she's holding on any given day and what she thinks when she's walking in or out of the grocery store might actually be the pivot point for what's going on with migration across the globe. We're in an ever expanding situation. Um, so the storylines in this play can never sit too long with one single narrative because it's never really about one person. Yet you can totally put that on stage and there's an element of this that will be quite beautiful on a stage 
if we get to stages, right? And, and I'm excited about that. There's part of this that can do that. But what part of this? A 90 minute part of this, great. A two hour part of this, okay. Yes, with what I have already, I can, I can make a beginning, middle and end with a movement and a crescendo, like I can do that, sure. With these multiple narratives, great. Or a four hour one, or a three night one, right? You see where I'm going? The other thing you could do is take all the material I have and give every theater in the city their own series of scenes so that the audience has to migrate from one theater to the next to see where all this is going. The other thing one could do is just take theaters across the nation and give each one their own season. You're, you take summer, you take autumn, you take winter, and they all mount their own, right? The other thing you can do is just mount it as a web-based platform. They perform it, they record it, it gets mounted on the web and the audience enters through a journey that they create themselves. So now they're migrating through. I want to start in Palestine. I want to go from Palestine to El Paso. After El Paso, I really want to see what that woman in Michigan might say. And then you're, so it might actually be very affordable. Any, any theater that wants to take part across the world only has to produce one scene and mount it into this immersive web portal. The point might be to do two or three of these at the same time so that what we get in a smaller subset, we then go, oh, now I'm gonna go to this other platform and it's Indira's web, it's everywhere. I think about it in theory a lot. And I think it's really interesting that after, after my first months, way back in um, 2018, when I had written the first five or six little five, 10 minute pieces for the McCarter. It was then that I looked upon it and I said, I need to create a new theatrical platform for this. And I didn't know what I meant by that. I didn't have an answer. I just said, I need a new theatrical platform. This has gotta be accessible to the different communities that I work in and talk to all the time. This is, this is not a hundred dollar ticket situation. Right? Because, I mean, believe me, I live in New York City. I don't get to go to the theater. I can't afford it. I can't afford to go see my friends in shows. So this is not, this was never going to fly <laughs> in that kind of capacity. It always needed a new platform. But, but beyond just affordability, it was, it was because it wanted to have conversations across borders. it wanted to understand migration in a really different way. So, but I was creating it in the theater as in with a theater mindset. I wasn't saying, okay, so now I'm gonna go write this thing for TV, no. Like what is it about theater that had me knowing, you know, it was, I, I, want, I want it to feel live. I want it to feel cathartic. I want it to feel like we're connected to everybody we're sitting in this room 
with. I think a sense of liveness and a sense of connectedness can absolutely happen on the screen and on the web, even if it's not technically live, and maybe it is technically live. An immersive web-based platform would influence this play, even if one were never built, even if it were only ever a 90-minute play on stage. And the reason that's true is because every individual is on a device, we are augmented humans, right? We are augmented humans connected to humans everywhere with access to stories about everything everywhere. And our economic underpinnings are part of a global economy where everything we touch or click or PayPal or buy is connected to everybody everywhere. So that even if we just went and watched a 90 minute version of this, in a theater, the underpinnings of everything that that was would be like an immersive web-based platform because that, that's, that's who we are now. Where I'm at in my process right now is I'm trying to really hone in on what a 90 minute, two hour piece would be. And I'm building this entire big web experience somehow, even though I don't know how, <laughs> because they're in conversation with each other. So we were humming right along with all these great conversations being recorded with Heather, her husband, her collaborators. And we thought we had enough to wrap everything up. This was like a year ago. This episode you're listening to now was going to come out in June of 2021, but KJ and I knew we needed a little more, and as we were struggling with what Heather's play really was, that struggle mirrored in the episode we were creating. We hadn't created a structure for it yet, the uh, organizing principle as Heather describes it. And we knew we wanted to talk to her one more time to see where she was relative to when we started talking to her over a year ago. It took a long time to get Heather and I together again because our schedules just wouldn't align. But we finally connected one year after our first conversation. And I'm sort of glad that time passed because Heather was able to talk about the play from inside it, but also look back at the process up to that point. I remember when we started talking, I'd been in research mode for a couple of years and had a substantial amount of stuff written, but didn't have an organizing principle for how I was really gonna move through this vast amount of work. I had the desire for it to continue to grow even bigger, as in I didn't wanna stop doing research. I didn't wanna not write about new things. I just thought, God, I've really gotta get a handle on, on the operating metaphor of this piece so that I can hone in, create an architecture for it, and then go out and get more material. Also, because it was COVID times, I kind of put a pause button on the outfield, the research, right? And went full force into what I now am calling, and I didn't have this language then, the overstory 
of the play. So the overstory we could say is the architecture, we could say it's the operating metaphor and organizing principle. I'm calling it the overstory because I read the book called The Overstory, loved it. Um, and I think it's really, it's, it's really to the point, meaning that book, you meet characters, you meet those characters' ancestors, you follow them through chapters across time. When you first meet people, they just live in each chapter, and then you move to a completely other set of people, right? By three quarters of the way through the book, those people from different chapters start interacting and crossing over, right? So you could say it's a book about these people and the life of trees that has influenced them um, you could, what could you say it's about? It's about um, climate and ecology and all of that, but it's really about the evolution of trees. It's what it's actually really about, even though you're following people. Similarly, my play has all these scenes that take place all across the world and they're scenes between people. And sometimes characters will repeat or sometimes they will cross over. And these are these things that I've been working on. But what is the play really about? It's about migration as it lives in climate on a planet and the evolution of why we move, not we as in people, but why anything might move, right? So. How do you write that? <laughs> is that just production? Is that what is that visual stuff that you see? What the real play is about might be something that I'm not even writing. Is is what the real play is about? The the value systems that we're working in and the economic structures that are pulling us taunt through these reasons why we move? Is it really just climate and where it's all going? I don't like so I basically spent a year exploring that and exploring how to cut the play, not expand it, how to cut it down enough to be able to follow these trajectories. So right now I'm following rivers and I'm following currents and I'm following climate and I'm following these things between these scenes. But I would say the overall, the overall work of the year has been honing in on that overstory and seriously trimming the text to a point where now I understand I'm not just writing this one play, I'm writing a play cycle. So I've trimmed this to a 90 minute. And what I'm working on is a 3D version of a play. Because what I realized in trying to talk about it with different people, um, was that they needed to see it and hold it. And what I mean by that is not the immersive web platform, not the, not the product, not the performance. They needed to be able to hold the text in a different way, right? So somebody says, okay, I'm interested in that play, send it to me. Well, what do you do? You send them 45 pages and they read it from beginning to end, right? And it's on paper or on a screen, it's a text. It's linear. What I want to send them is a text that looks like a circle. Ultimately, this is ultimately. So imagine this. We have, the play is written in scenes. 
maybe ultimately I have a hundred scenes, right? And what I want to do is create an algorithm where what you get delivered as the text, imagine Susan Laurie Park's 365 plays. Well, that'd be 365 plays in a circle, right? <laughs> so this one, let, what is it? Let's just name it. There are a hundred plays of the hundred scenes about migration, the global economy circle. And you just say, oh, the algorithm, if I center this one, El Paso, boom, you put it in the center. And there's some other algorithm where you choose, you choose to follow these currencies, the currency of labor or the currency of education or the currency of loss, right? You put those, you plug those three in and you get 15 scenes. That's a play. You get a 90 minute version, beginning, middle and end, or it's right. Like, but the algorithm that you put in because you centered El Paso or you centered Yemen, or you wanted to start in Detroit, or you wanted to go from Detroit to Russia changes everything. And it's a completely new play depending on how you want to read it. Right. And then there's choices you get to make along the way. So it's literally just the text is 3d because that's how I think of it. Now that I've whittled it down to this 90 minute version, I go, okay, that's great. This is really fun. I can send this to a theater. They might even do it, <laughs> that 90 minute version. But I'm also thinking, well, who, who are they that want to do it? Is that a theater in New York or is that, is that a theater in El Paso or a theater in San Diego on the border? Well, what matters differently to said theater in San Diego that lives so close to the busiest border crossing in the world, different than New York? What's different? What do they want to center, right? How do we create a local center to this global play, no matter where it is, right? So that's why I want it to feel 3D, is that they can pick up a script center something that matters to them. I write a bespoke scene for, for that place, but I can still use all this material that I've been writing over years. I'm thinking of this as a ongoing play cycle because there's, oh, there's so much more that I haven't written because I haven't had time. And like I said, I did try to use this last year as a, a pause button to go back to find the architecture so that when I write new things, I, I know where to put them or what the organizing principle is in how I'm going to use them. It's not that there are endless, just endless stories, because there are endless stories on this subject. It's that there are key pillars of stories that without which um, it would feel like there was a hole in the story, right? So th those are the things that are on my mind and have been for years. And, and I've just kind of have them like, um, like a bookmark, <laughs> like I'll get there when I can get there, right? These, these huge structural p pillars of how we talk about migration as it relates to the global economy, how we talk about movement patterns and value systems across the world, without which if I, if I don't write them, I'll be upset with myself. But then there is also just this sense of 
evolution and migration to the narrative around the subject matter of migration itself. That we will be in a very different place. Just as we're seeing how, let's say I was writing this pre-COVID, how COVID changed all of our lenses and how we look at things. Um, just as increasing climate issues continue to change how we think about these things. So I think that it's, it's a story that migrates because it's about migration. So it, it has to continue to evolve. Another thing I'm very interested in is creating a pedagogy for working in with students or in a university setting or in a community setting um, about not so much teaching the dramaturgy of this, although that's interesting to me. It's more like, how do I go into a community or a classroom and create a writing process or story circle um, with a group that allows us to unpack their local concerns and their local impact on migration globally. Because I do think that as this play gets built and continues to just have a life as a play, it'd be very interesting to go into a university and create a new play out of Penn State, right? create a play with students based on this process. What are their stories? What did it take for them to arrive to this place? How many of them migrated or came from people that migrated? Like what, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a functioning pedagogy of how we think about um, our local connections to global impacts. So that's something I'm kind of simultaneously chewing on and, and thinking on as I personally keep going into community. So I was just in Tijuana on a research residency and I got to um, be part of a story circle that um, was happening in an LGBTQ migrant facility, migrant house. And it was very interesting to me to be hearing what their concerns are and what they feel the impact of their lives and choices are on their dreams. And then, you know, the next day to be in San Diego and LA. Then flying to Detroit, another border town, and then coming back to Brooklyn. Like, it's just... And here I am an Iraqi American. So I listen to what they say as I hold the multitude of stories I've heard from Iraqi refugees. And I keep thinking about what, when can I get these people that I talk to talking to each other? What would it take to create a pedagogy for that kind of work in these different communities, but then see how different the actual stories are or where they're not so different. What's different about doing this in an LGBTQ 
migrant house in Tijuana versus a classroom at Penn State. What happens? What's the different thing that happens? And what's the same thing that happens? Where does the conversation cross over and where does it become so specific to locale and population? And then how does that inform the play I'm making? And how does that inform what could be plays I make with other people in different communities? I found so many things surprising in recording all these conversations and listening to people talk about Heather, her work, and this project. I wanted to know if Heather herself found any surprises along the way as she developed this work. I did find something really surprising. I found that the value system and currency that's been impacting me most from the American theater and the American theater system is still one of product, lack of curiosity, inventive process, and that currency, that value currency still kind of boils down to me to the thing the theater is getting rather than the investment in the curiosity of my art. And on the flip side, my deeper time in migrant communities, including the story circle in Tijuana, is so clearly about the value system of joy and possibility, and we can make anything work. And when you put those side by side, it is so startling. In Tijuana, amongst the, I was in a house, <laughs> I was in a house of Tijuanan dancers, right? And their sense of what you create and how you create and anything can be created and we're just creating it. And then the story circle that was created, um, with the migrants and what they were saying about their life and what I felt was possible and the, the, the current, the currency of joy and care was really like anything is possible. We're making something. And that's what I'm trying to make. And then if I look at what has been years of, of feeling like this is an uphill battle of, um, how to, how to pursue this, this way of experimenting within the theater that I know and love. It's, it's been a lot of rules and a lot of no and a lot of pushback and a lot of rejection. It's been a lot of rejection. And I think that's really, it's just gotta be different ways of making our art. The, um, the stories themselves the necessity of the stories and the amazing aha moments I see when people start making the connections across the stories and the essentialness of us waking to waking to our global impacts. I know how stressful day-to-day -day life is for all of us, right? We, we, we all have a lot on our plates. 
Um, but it's essential for me to help individuals understand how communal this planet really is. Um, because I do think our survival depends on it. I just really do. I think we're in a definitely in a make or break moment in our history, both in our country and on our planet. So helping get the narrative right, right now is really important to me. Maybe if we were just people, we wouldn't even like each other. Maybe my, maybe my empathy is the problem. Maybe it just gets in the way of actually seeing that we have value, whether we understand each other or not. But why do I still want you to smile? We can't talk like when this is over and when things go back to normal because normal was exponential all the time, right? It was more and more, endless more. Why in life do we only expect to grow? What's the star from which you came? Came to be here. And what if our here-ness is just a reflection of something already past so that even our aliveness is already a deadness? Behind the grocery store worker is another grocery store worker, then another. I might be done, that might be everything. I don't know. And behind the line of grocery store workers are those who stock, drive, farm, harvest. I feel like I'm dissolving. Please, please do you have anything you want to say? The man considers then turns to look behind him. He looks at the people who stand in his footsteps all the way back into infinity. The scene dissolves. The rain continues. The flood comes and sweeps everything we thought we knew away. The currency of flu season is loss. I want to thank Maya Roth, Haley Finn, Matthew Wells, and Michael Karachi for contributing their voices to this episode. I also want to thank Jeremy Cohen and Daniel Reck from the Playwright Center. This episode has taken us so long to complete, Daniel no longer works there, but he was a great help in putting this all together. Jeremy Cohen, as I said at the beginning of the show, is the Artistic Director of Playwright Center, and my conversation with him is actually the next episode following a couple weeks, so keep your ears out for that. I want to offer a huge thank you to Heather Raffo herself for being so generous with her time and allowing us inside her process. I've become a massive fan and will support anything she does in the future, and I hope you do as well. 
Thank you to Rob Weiner Kent and American Theater Magazine, a program of Theater Communications Group. The biggest thanks of all goes to KJ Jarbo, our associate producer. KJ did all the editing for this episode, and it wasn't just editing. I really had no idea how to conceptualize this piece, and KJ figured it all out. All I had to do was talk to people, so thank you, KJ, for being an extraordinary collaborator who is so consistently awesome. The music from this episode is by Ketza. The theme song for the subtext is from International Pen Pal. Find us on the socials, rate and review the show wherever you get podcasts, and drop us a line if you have something to say. Our email is thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is Tomorrow Will Be Sunday by Heather Raffo. If you have a theater, produce this play in whatever form you can. I want to see it out in the world.